Hello, welcome to the Bankers podcast series, Banking in Transition, looking at how the banking industry is really adapting to the new normal as the world begins to recover from the global pandemic. I'm Joy McKnight, editor of The Banker, and my guest this week is Richard Hummel, Asset Threat Intelligence Lead at NetScout, a cybersecurity and network diagnostics firm, which has just released its threat intelligence report for the first half of 2021 called The Long Tail of Attacker Innovation. Um, the report provides a lot of insight and analysis into the nature of distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks in the first half of 2021. Thanks so much for joining me, Richard. Thanks so much for having me, Joy. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so what would you say are the big number findings in the report? Oh, big numbers. Um, all right, let's 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 take the roof off here. So 5.4 approximately million attacks in the first half of 2021. If you go back to last year, we talked about a record-breaking number of just over 10 million on the year. So if we hold true at 5.4 million and continue that trajectory to the end of the year, we could be potentially pushing up against 11 million attacks on the year, which is just absurd. And that 5.4 approximate includes months like January and February that achieved 930,000 attacks in a single month. That, that's a lot of attacks. And if you were to compare DDoS attacks to any other kind of cyber-based attack in the world, your jaw would be on the floor from that number of attacks. Uh, and so it's a very, very active threat landscape at this, at this point in time. Okay, and then where would you say are the biggest cyber threats or the attackers? Where are they coming from? Everywhere. So the nature of distributed denial of service attacks or DDoS uh, means that there's basically this whole army of devices out there that can contribute to attacks. Now, where the actual adversaries are is anybody's guess. The nature of DDoS allows the adversary to be extremely anonymous. And let me just kind of lay this out for you. So let's just look at one single individual DDoS attack. And I'm going to say that 85% of all DDoS attacks are related to gamers and not just targeting like gaming companies, but actually targeting individuals actually at their home console on online playing games, because there's a lot of competitive nature here and it's extremely cheap and easy to get access to these DDoS tools in the underground. And so they will launch attacks with their competitors that can knock them offline. Um, and that's important because there's a lot of money involved in some of these matches as well, right? So whether it's esports or it's underground gambling on esports or any number of other things, if an adversary is able to knock their opponent off for any length of time, 10 seconds even, is enough to potentially throw a match. And so this is what we're seeing in terms of like who the targets of attacks are, but it also includes um, extortion groups going after the, the commercial banking sector. Um, going after like insurance related, going after currency exchanges. So you see all these different things. Um, and the reality is, is that attacks are against everyone. They're from all kinds of people all over the place. They originate from botnets. They originate from what we call booters and stressors, which is essentially a underground service that any person with $10 in cryptocurrency can log in and they can launch an attack using any number of DDoS attack vectors at any one of their choosing. And so who is actually launching these things? Let's just say every kind of person from every place all over the world. And by nature of the way DDoS works is it's inscripting devices everywhere. If I were to tally up all of the available devices for the different DDoS vectors out there, 
we're talking in the hundreds of millions of available devices that adversaries can abuse to launch attacks. If we're looking at just botnets, we're talking in the millions of IP addresses of basically conscripted devices, IoT devices or computers or whatever there might be that adversaries can use to launch DDoS attacks. Now, we do have some very clear uh, kind of delimiters between who is launching these attacks. So let's take the gaming piece out of this. Who else is going after in launching these attacks? Um, and that brings me to kind of these, these groups, if you will, or these campaigns. We typically call them a campaign because it's really hard to define the boundaries of who is a group. Is it an, an individual? Do they have a team? We don't always know these things. And so we typically call them campaigns. So last year we talked about Lazarus Bar Armada or LBA for short. And they're a DDoS extortion campaign that started basically targeting commercial entities. Uh, these guys, they're in it for the money. And so where do they go? Naturally where the money is. And this started right around August of last year. They would go after commercial banking entities and they went after a lot in a lot of different countries using all kinds of different vectors. They changed their, their attack vectors over time. They realized, man, these commercial banks, they just do not want to pay us money. Um, liken them to Fort Knox, right? They just would not give up the jewels. And so they moved on to financial adjacent. They started targeting insurance companies or like various travel exchanges and then going after like kind of a domino effect. And so they would go after industries in kind of this, this rippling way where, man, these guys didn't pay. Let's move to the next one. Let's move to the next one. Um, fast forward to today. Now they're almost indiscriminate in what kind of industry sector they're going after. They're just going to go after anybody that they can get their hands on to try to get a payday. More recently this year, we saw a new DDoS extortion campaign that basically self-named themselves Fancy Lazarus. Um, and we've seen them go after slightly different industries. They're going after uh, internet service providers and their authoritative DNS servers. Um, and they're using kind of a, a more truncated or narrow attack portfolio, primarily using DNS reflection amplification or various other types of DNS attacks. Um, and so we see some concerted kind of groups or campaigns in the past, you've probably heard of Armada Collective. Um, you've probably heard of Lizard Stressor uh, or Lizard Squad. And like, sometimes we can wrap names around these groups or these campaigns, but oftentimes it's almost impossible to figure out who is actually originating these attacks. Now, you might be able to find out what platform they used or what bot they used, but who was the actual person that initiated that attack or that paid for it? That's really, really difficult to do. So where would you say that cyber criminals are being the most innovative? Where aren't they being innovative? A lot of times we liken the cyber criminal world to the enterprise. And in the enterprise, some of the things that you do for innovation is one, you outsource areas that are not your expertise. You create these kind of expertise silos and you assign people that are very good at one thing to continuing that one thing and making it more efficient, making it better. Um, so there's, there's any number of ways in kind of the enterprise and the entrepreneur can do to streamline and make things more efficient. And that includes thinking outside the box. What are other ways I can attack whatever problem it is or, or attack the market segment or whatever it might be? You're thinking of ways to kind of deviate from the norm. Well, adversaries are doing the exact same thing. What we're seeing is a lot of these operations function like full-on enterprises. They will have the original, like the CEO, if you will, could be like the malware author. They code this complex piece of code and they're not actually going to deploy it themselves. They're not going to operate it themselves. They're not going to, they're not going to set up the infrastructure themselves. No, they'll, they'll offer the malware for a kind of like malware as a service type thing or ransomware as a service and say, hey, look, you guys can buy into this affiliate program. You can use our coded malware. We'll continue to support the malware, update the malware. 
um, but you're going to have to do everything else. So this operator buys into the platform and they're like, you know what? I just want to reap the benefits. I don't want to actually do the work. So now they're going to outsource sending spam messages. And so they'll contact a, a, a boutique entity or underground service that's offering just very, very high, high quality, I guess, if you will, spam messages, ones that look identical to things you would normally expect in your inbox. They'll contact them, they'll send those out. And then you, they might outsource the infrastructure and say, man, I'm not going to put my name on this. I'm going to contact a bulletproof hosting service provider and they're going to host the infrastructure. And so you have this kind of outsourcing and you have all these expertise and because they're able to focus on one thing, they get better and better and better at what they do. And so that is what we're seeing in the criminal world. And that's why things are changing very rapidly. And so you have these adversaries who aren't necessarily managing every aspect of their business. So when a new DDoS attack vector comes out, or let's just say they're researching their own new vectors, they're able to do that. They have the resources, they have the cycles to do it. And so not only are we seeing them innovate very rapidly there, they're also taking proof of concept. Security researchers all the time are finding vulnerabilities, right? You have um, all these different public releases and typically you do responsible disclosure where you work with folks to get them patched before they disclose. But sometimes you have researchers out there like, hey, I found this really interesting thing. Here's my research behind this. Maybe they did responsible disclosure or not. But an adversary can take that research and they can figure out, you know what? You can actually exploit it this other way that maybe they weren't thinking about before. Uh, or maybe this exploits patch, you can't actually get in, but maybe the same services can be abused some other way. Maybe we can use it for DDoS. And so you have adversaries taking this kind of proof of concept stuff and rapidly iterating that into their platforms way faster, by the way, than a lot of organizations can launch patches. And so even if you've done responsible disclosure, even if there is a patch to update your code or your hardware, or your software to be able to mitigate those attacks, sometimes the time a patch is released to integration it could be six months to a year, depending on the organizational flow. Adversaries do not have that impingement. They can take proof of concept code and the very next day can have that incorporated into their tools to launch attacks. And so they're able to do this and iterate much faster. Another way that we're seeing innovation here is that adversaries are monitoring the efficacy of their attacks and they're figuring out what defenses are in place and ways around those defenses. And so let me give you an example in the DDoS space. One of the DDoS attack vectors that took first place for the first half of 2021 is TCP act floods. And it used to be that DNS reflection amplification was, was predominant and king, and it has been for the past two years. But we started to see this rapid increase of TCP act floods, and it got us asking the question, well, why are we seeing this? And it turns out because adversaries figured out that TCP act flooding can actually bypass certain layers of mitigation and protection in place at different companies and organizations. And so what we're seeing adversaries do is they're launching these attacks to bypass that layer of security. And if that fails, then they're figuring out other ways to do this. So a good example is in the past uh, seven or eight months, we had two financial entities in the payment card processing um, industry who had two different layers of DDoS mitigation and protection services in place. And what the adversaries did is they launched an attack and it failed. They launched a different attack and it succeeded, but then they hit that second layer of defense. Well, now they went back to their first attack and tried that and guess what, it worked. And so they launched the attack, which was your typical DDoS attack, your volumetric, your reflection amplification, followed by the TCP act floods, which basically 
took down both layers of protection in order to actually take their target down. And these organizations are very heavily defended and they weren't down for more than a few minutes, but in the payment card processing world, a few minutes results in millions of dollars of loss of revenue because cards are declined mm -hmm. all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. um, in, in another scenario, we saw the exact opposite. We saw the TCP Act flip first, followed by vol Volumetric, which also succeeded in taking down the target. And so this is how adversaries are innovating. They're changing their tactics to basically bypass these security measures. Okay, and then I was just wondering, were there any results from the research that you did that really surprised you or, you know, that you didn't expect? I think there's a couple of things um, that are in there. One is, is some of the numbers, um, the normalization of terabit class attacks, where we're seeing more and more over one terabit in bandwidth. Um, so that was kind of surprising. There's, there's four listed in the report, but we were actually looking at about a dozen of them before we, we finalized those four in the report. So that's one thing. Um, the uh, adaptive nature of these adversaries is another one. That was kind of a, a shock to us. Like adversaries being able to monitor the efficacy in real time and launch multiple scenarios to get around different layers of security. Um, that's getting into more sophisticated realms that we don't typically see in the DDoS world. Um, and then another thing that we haven't touched on yet, we have a section in the threat report um, on IoT. And we call this a botnet expose because in the past reports, what we've done is we, we report on the latest trends in Mirai or the latest trends in the GAFGET malware, um, or maybe just overarching, like what, what are we seeing in the Linux world for IoT malware? And we would give numbers, we would talk about, you know, what devices they can compromise, what kind of passwords there are. But it got me thinking about, you know, does this really matter to the average person? Because this is kind of like pie in the sky stuff. And, and maybe a security researcher is like, hey, that's interesting. Okay, great. But what I really wanted to show in this one is, is basically botnets in your backyard. Where are these botnets? What are they doing to compromise other devices? How are they launching attacks? Uh, because these, these devices that are compromised are just everyday devices. These are IoT devices sitting in your home. These are your routers. These are your CCTV cameras, whatever they might be, right? These are things we use on a day-to-day -day basis. So I wanted to show exactly how those are being abused, where they're located, and how they're basically proliferating, how are they spreading to other devices around the world? And so we have a botnet expose in there. And the very first thing that we show is a geographic map that shows the density zones for where these active DDoS botnets are in the world. And so we took data from a bunch of honeypots around the world, um, our own data, as well as the partner's data. Um, we came up with about 200,000 compromised devices out there that have any any kind of botnet on them. So it could be Mirai, it could be Gafgate, it could be Satori, Lucifer, it doesn't really matter. We didn't really look at the individual uh, malware type. We just wanted to know, is it a device out there that's compromised and is it launching DDoS attacks against our customers? And lo and behold, it is. We came up with approximately 200,000 IP addresses that in the past, in, the, in that first half of 2021, were complicit in launching attacks against our customers. And what was really, really surprising to me is that 2.8 million of the approximately 5.4 million attacks for the first half of 2021 had some form of botnet representation in it. And so 200,000 roughly botnets contributing to greater than 2.8 million attacks that we saw in the first half of 2021. That, that kind of floored me. Um, I had no idea that botnets contributed so much to the DDoS landscape ahead of this report. And so it's definitely a very intriguing finding that I think a lot of people will find very interesting. 
Okay, can we take a little step back and ex maybe can you can explain what botnets are? And then again, like the whole move to IoT or Internet of Thing devices, you know, how do they exploit these devices? Yeah, and so that's one of the things that the report's actually going to cover in detail. And so what we do is we take that high, higher level geographic image and we walk it down to the top three. So China, Vietnam, and India are the top three in terms of where these botnets are. Um, and what they're using to propagate, and you can go through the report and see this. So we do a focus in on, on let's just say, I'm gonna take Vietnam as an example, because there's a very interesting finding that I'm gonna call to action here. Um, so Vietnam, you can actually go in there and you can see how many times botnets or, or botted nodes. So these are IoT devices, their computers, their routers that have been compromised by an adversary. Now, oftentimes that compromise is automatic. So Mirai, for instance, will infect the device and it will do automatic propagation. In other words, it will scan the internet, it'll reach out and try to basically brute force using common usernames and passwords to a bunch of other devices. Sometimes they'll use exploits. In fact, um, last time I looked at Mirai, I think there was something like 78 exploits that it was using to be able to compromise other devices. And so this happens almost automatically in many cases. Sometimes we will see an adversary doing something manually that stands out. And this is why I bring up Vietnam. So in our honeypots, we can actually witness how many times botnets from Vietnam have reached back to one of our controlled honeypots. And so we've got that number in there. But what's more is we can figure out, okay, the bots in Vietnam are doing this to propagate. And so we can actually list out the top usernames and passwords. We can list out the top exploits. We know what the common flavors of Mirai or Gafkit are. And what's more is we can determine when there's an emergent botnet. And the reason I bring up Vietnam is because one of the phenomena that we saw was a lot of usernames and passwords for MicroTik routers. And MicroTik routers are very regionally focused. They're not, they're not globally distributed. Um, and Vietnam has a high concentration of these MicroTik routers. And so by monitoring all this data, we actually saw an adversary specifically trying to establish a greater botnet that enslaves these MicroTik routers. The last report that we did we saw the same thing with Hikvision devices. And so we can actually see when these botnets are being built. And what's very interesting about the, the Vietnam and the MicroTik router specifically is there's a recent report that just came out in the past week talking about this new botnet that people are calling Maris. And this Maris botnet very, very specifically and explicitly goes after and exploits MicroTik routers. And so despite us not knowing about this new botnet coming up, we were seeing indications of that emergent botnet in our system well before um, it was uncovered that it was a new botnet, which is really, really cool to me. Um, and so basically a bot itself is, is going to be some device out there compromised by an adversary that can do and launch attacks on behalf of that adversary. Um, and so this is, this is where we're left, right? And so now you have this idea of botnets in your backyard and what it really means to you. Excellent. That is so interesting. Um, my next question is about uh, the financial industry specifically. And I know you said earlier that the ability of these criminals to really, these cyber criminals to really attack like all different industries, but obviously the financial industry is, is still, you know, um, even though it's well fortified, it's still a subject of these attacks. And I think in your report, it said more than 50% of, of targeted organizations were in the financial services industry. In this situation, sort of what type of attacks are the most successful, would you say? 
So I think it varies a lot and it's really hard to talk about which attacks it sees the most without talking about, well, are organizations prepared to handle the attacks? Because that's the key differentiator here. The reason a DDoS attack works is largely because an ad, uh, organization is not properly prepared to handle that. I would say 80 to 90% of DDoS attacks out there can be mitigated properly if you have some semblance of mitigation in place. It's a lot of these organizations that I'm never going to be hit by a DDoS attack is what they say. And guess what? You're going to get hit by a DDoS attack. In fact, a lot of these calls that I've been doing talking about threat report and even last time, it's not a matter of if you're going to get attacked. It's a matter of when at this point, because the world is so interconnected. It is so mm. dependent on internet connections that no matter what happens, you're going to experience something to do with DDoS, whether that is collateral damage, it's latency in your networks, maybe it's latency in your home networks, and maybe you as an individual consumer of the internet are never really going to notice that, but there's a good chance that you have been impacted by DDoS attacks because most DDoS attacks have collateral damage. If you're launching a very, very large attack at a very specific, specific target, maybe it's a bank, and you're launching it against one individual IP address, well, what happens for that attack to get to that target? It has to traverse any number of internet service provider networks. So it's impacting the transit of all of that internet traffic and the same transit that normal consumers are using. And so even if you're not the intended target of an attack, you can experience outage, disruptions, latency because of an attack against somebody else. Um, and so preparation goes a very, very long way into securing against these. And, and yeah, you're right. Financial institutions have seen a significant rise. I wouldn't say it's necessarily 50% of all attacks, maybe 50% of when we're looking at industry specific, you can start to see finance kind of escalate there. And I will say that that escalation started around the time the Lazarus Bar Armada crew started launching attacks back in August of last year. And because exclusively they went after that. In fact, if you look at our last threat report, which is actually live right now, um, you can go, I have this, um, diagram on there and you can actually go and see the timeline of what industries they hit and the very first very first indication of an attack that we had from the lazarus Barramada, i think it actually goes back to july 26th was the date uh commercial banking that's who they hit and that's who they continued to hit all the way through the end of the year into 2021 and so naturally that led to a much higher targeting rate for financial institutions and then the, the stuff I just talked about, about TCP act floods, hitting payment card processors that hit payment card processors, it hit commercial banks. And so, yeah, we're seeing more and more attacks against these institutions. And, and what's worse is sometimes those attacks succeed and to the financial industry, they can have devastating impact. The Lazarus Barramada is a very clear indication of this when they went after the New Zealand stock exchange and they were able to successfully take operations down there for about four days. I mean, how many millions of dollars were lost as a result of that? And so, yeah, we're seeing this uh, kind of escalated targeting of the financial industry because adversaries look at the success of each other. And if somebody succeeded at one point, other people are going to think they're going to do the same. And so you see this kind of inflated uh, attack against the industry. What do you think banks can do to better protect themselves against these attacks? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, preparation is key making sure that you have some form, understand that it's not a matter of if, but when, and there are plenty of solutions out there, right size for any, any size organization. 
whether you're this massive enterprise or international banking conglomerate, or you're a local branch, maybe you only have local branches. Well, I don't really need to have the same kind of security posture as somebody else. I don't have my own security team. That's fine. There's cloud options. There's managed service providers. There's any number of ways to do this. Just by having some form of protection in place from a professional service is going to get you 80% of the way to protection. The other 20% is going to be things like making sure that you have the proper network set up, make sure that your critical assets aren't all clumped together. So if one thing goes down, something else can take over, making sure that you have redundancies in place. Maybe one of your DNS servers is going down. Can you pivot to some other one? Maybe your VPN concentrators are out, so your remote workforce can't log in. Is there a recourse that you have to that? Uh, so all of these things go into preparation, getting all the stuff in place before an attack occurs. Now, I will give some silver lining here because I don't like to be all doom and gloom. With DDoS, there typically is an end in sight. And so despite getting impacted, if you do go down for any period of time, most DDoS attacks last less than 15 minutes. And I would say that the vast majority of attacks are in the five to 10 minute window. And so it's not the end of the world if you go down for a period of time. But if you do go down, the adversary realizes you go down, they will come back and they will try to probably extort you for some form of payment in order to keep those services online. So the cool thing with DDoS though, is that there are hotlines you can call to get emergency DDoS help, whether that's with our own Arbor Cloud or whatever it might be. You can say, hey, I'm getting DDoS attacked. I got an extortion note and another attack is imminent. I need help. And we have the ability to emergency onboard people to get that mitigation in place so you can be protected. And then from almost all of these DDoS extortion crews and campaigns, having that protection in place almost assures that you're going to have um, mitigations in place for that campaign to launch and you're not going to go down. Uh, I don't recall any customer of ours that got hit by LBA, that got hit by Fancy Lazarus, that had significant impact or downtime to their business organization because they were prepared to handle the attacks that came in. And they have a, a rockstar team on support in order to make sure that they stay online. And so that's really it, is making sure that you're prepared. And if you're a big organization or if you're a big enterprise, making sure that you're doing realistic scenarios and actual real-time testing so that if a DDoS attack hits you, you know at what point you're going to be protected or, or where you need to offload support to somebody else. And so doing kind of what we call red teaming, actually launching attacks against yourself to ensure that your services and your posture can handle those attacks, um, that's going to go a long way. The other piece of the puzzle is this just the security awareness. So by nature of anybody listening to this podcast, you're doing the right thing. You're getting a handle, you're getting a pulse on the threat landscape. You're understanding what adversaries are doing and you're thinking about how do I bring this back to my organization and make sure that we're properly protected. And that that's where really it all starts is making sure that you understand there are adversaries out there. You will get attacked at some point, whether directly or indirectly. And then taking that initiative to get some form of protection in place. I think my next question and last question is really the $50 million question, which is where are the next threats coming from? Do you think? I think the biggest thing that we're going to have to worry about right now um, continues to be just DDoS in general. The numbers keep going up and to the right. And then you have ransomware, which is also up and to the right. You have this duo attack 
apparatus, if you will, that is just devastating the world. Ransomware is the number one threat for everyone everywhere all around the world. DDoS is a very close second due just just the sheer volume of attacks. What we're seeing in the past year is adversaries merging these two together. We're seeing the triple extortion. So a ransomware gang will compromise somebody. They will encrypt all of their files. They will steal the data, and then they will follow that up with DDoS attacks. And why this is devastating is because the ransomware encrypts your files. They demand Bitcoin payment. If they don't get the Bitcoin payment, they have your data to hold hostage. They can blackmail you with that data. And then if you still fail to pay, they can launch a DDoS attack to basically take your networks offline. And it's a one, two, three punch that is very, very powerful. We're seeing more and more crews and gangs and campaigns leveraging this triple extortion. Um, There's at least five known groups to me today that have used this kind of triple extortion method. And even more this morning, there was a a link I was reading. I I think it's like a, a blog either yesterday or today Um, where there's a malware or ransomware family out there called Lockbit, I believe, Lockbit 2.0. And they had posted something in their underground forum asking a DDoS crew to reach out to them. And the dark side crew, which took down the um, software aspect for the Colonial Pipeline that shut down gas at the Eastern Seaboard, they started offering DDoS as part of their toolkit on April 24th. So you can see more and more of these guys are adding DDoS into there. So you have this marriage of these threats that to me is really powerful. And so I fully expect us to see more of that in the future. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your insights, Richard. Absolutely. I definitely appreciate being here with you, Joy. And thanks to our audience for listening. Keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and follow our discussions at thebanker.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.